Good afternoon, this is Michael Osterlink, and I'm pleased to announce I have a co-host today. It's Jim Turner. He is a friend and mentor. He's also chairman of Citizens for Health and president of Voice for Hope. How are you doing, Jim? Doing well. Glad to be here. Thanks, Michael, for the invitation. It's great to have you here. And uh, we're doing a trilogue today. It's going to be Jim and I having a conversation with Roger Yake. He is doctor of oriental medicine as well as director of health action. How are you doing, Roger? I'm great, Michael, and greetings, Jim. Glad to be here. Good to hear your voice. Well, Roger, welcome back. We've uh, had a few conversations in the past, and it's nice to continue along that train of, of thinking. Um, so in politics today, over the past couple of years, the conversation has been Obamacare or no Obamacare, or various variations of that conversation. Should we repeal it? Should we reform it? Should, be, should it stay? And that kind of conversation is mostly about two things. Who pays for a current conventional medical system? And who has control over both who pays and what treatments are offered? And as interesting or not as that conversation is, I think a much more interesting and useful conversation would be what would a truly health and wellness promoting systems of medicine actually look like. So it's Roger, it's great to have you because you actually have implemented a system of thought that's helping people. And Jim, you've been working on, on healthcare, health freedom and healthcare reform for quite a long time. So I think this will be a great conversation about what a new system, and I want to make that plural, what new systems might look like. And what's already happening here in this country, in the United States, that kind of are, are models that can be emulated. Uh, Roger, first to you. What yeah, you thank you, Michael, and appreciate everything that you just said. It makes good sense. So my background, <clears throat> interestingly enough, is that I'm one of the uh, first uh, people in the United States to be licensed as an acupuncturist and doctor of oriental medicine. And so I've been involved with the integration of uh, what some people call alternative medicine and some people call um, uh, complementary medicine and what we now mostly call integrative medicine. And uh, Chinese medicine has integrated actually fairly well here in the United States starting in the 1970s and um, just continuing on and uh, a big part of uh, how this whole process that you're pointing towards has actually been happening historically, then I would add that um, I had the great pleasure of becoming a consultant and helping to design uh, integrative medicine departments uh, at a number of uh, healthcare systems throughout the United States. And what an amazing experience that was. And that really started to happen in around the 1990s. And there were numerous and still are numerous organizations, uh, healthcare organizations that began to implement integrative medicine departments uh, all the way back into the 80s and 90s. And then in addition to that, uh, in the 90s there was an organization, there still is an organization, which is called the Consortium of Integrative Medicine um, Programs, something like that. It's associated with uh, uh, medical schools that uh, that have 
an integrative medicine curriculum. So in other words, it's not an integrative medicine lecture series or an integrative medicine uh, lunch and learn. It's actually a part of the medical curriculum. And then, <clears throat> so clearly, this has all been happening for a really long time. And then the, the last thing that I would mention as evidence of all of this is uh, that we here at, at Health Action have trained both uh, what we call mind-body practice leaders, particularly in Tai Chi, and health coaches. And we've trained over a thousand um, teachers of mind-body practice and over a thousand health and wellness coaches, all of whom are integrated into their corporations, school systems, hospitals, and numerous other um, components of, of uh, what we would call, you know, normal life. Uh, and that's fantastic. Oh, one more thing. And that is that in the 90s, uh, the NIH opened the Office of Alternative Medicine, and then they transformed it into the National, uh, National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine, and then they recently transformed it again into the uh, National Center for Integrative Health. So these are all a part of the fabric of, of, of our lives. These are not unusual um, uh, radical, uh, you know, um, California sorts of uh, organizations. These are everything that I just talked about is a mainstreaming, which with with a uh, robust history. Um, so we're not really having this debate at all anymore. This is a part of how healthcare is developing. And by the way, and maybe one of you guys could speak to this. It is a part of the Obamacare as well, woven into Obamacare. There's both wellness features, prevention features, and even uh, integrative medicine features. Roger, it is, uh, that is true that uh, it is woven into the act. Uh, before we talk about that, however, could you give us kind of a thumbnail uh, sketch of what it means to the average individual uh, client or patient to uh, run into this kind of integrative uh, health care that you've just described? What happens when your coaches are actually on the front line coaching people, and what do the people that are coached receive from that? Sure, sure. Well, uh, the first thing is that, I know you're asking about the people, but I just want to take a one phrase or two phrases to talk about the institutional side of this. On the institutional side, <clears throat> it has been complex for um, therapies to get integrated as easily as um, uh, citizen behavioral change or patient behavioral change. So when we talk about integrating Chinese medicine or um, uh, massage or uh, osteopathic or uh, chiropractic, those kinds of therapeutics um, are very cumbersome to integrate into uh, conventional medical systems, though it has been done. And, and done really well by certain organizations. And I'm going to be talking next week with a grand, grand rounds at uh, Mayo Clinic in uh, Arizona. And that's exactly what they're doing, and they're probably going to do a pretty good job of it. Now, back to the 
so there's controversy there that you know needs to more time has to pass and um, good things are happening in that regard. On the level of the a the average citizen, <clears throat> there's 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 always going to be a bunch of people <laughs> who you know want. You've heard the phrase, you know, just give me a pill. Don't ask me to change my life. And so, uh, however, what we have found is that since the over the period of time since the 1980s, there's been a steady curve upward in terms of people's engagement. The 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 um, the word that is often used in um, corporate wellness programs is engagement. In other words, how many people uh, out of your entire staff are actually using the wellness program? And because these things are not medical, we're, we're really not even having a conversation now about the medical system. We're having a conversation about people's lives, which happen at home, at work, at school, at church, at, you know, other faith-based faith um, uh, organizations, the military, the Veterans Administration. These aren't necessarily medical contexts. These are life contexts. You could call them social contexts, if you wish. And in those contexts, what we have noticed is that the uptake or the engagement has been increasing. And of course, in one, uh, on one hand, this is based on the evidence, the research evidence base, which is building very rapidly around the fact that things like Tai Chi and Qigong and health coaching and um, uh, other things like uh, recreational uh, activities and exercise and stress management, that none of these things have negative side effects. None of these things have um, any kind of uh, um, counter, uh, counter indications for people who are either at risk for disease or who, who actually have disease. So the average person, particularly if their physician or other medical providers are encouraging them, tend to be very engageable. And when you put a group of people into a Tai Chi class or into a health coaching group, um, there's a social f component to this, which is fantastic. So in other words, in medicine, you're usually alone with a doctor or a surgeon or a surgical team. And um, in this case, what happens is that people come together, not so much based on their disease, but based on their desire to be more well, to be more functional, to have more fun, to, you know, make more money, to uh, have clearer minds, to live longer, to, to, be, to have less pain and so forth, to take less drugs. Uh, most people who take drugs with side effects would rather not be taking them, and so they kind of celebrate, um, often exuberantly celebrate their opportunity to be involved in a healthcare system which is transitioning to the point that empowers them as an individual to have a much more, um, much more, uh, well, I, I don't, I, I hesitate to use the, res the word responsibility because responsibilities that aren't that much fun are responsibilities, but responsibilities that are actually a lot of fun, um, you know, they're not responsibilities anymore. They're like just a fun part of life. Well, I had another question, um, maybe pushing this just a, a bit further. Um, your, one of your uh, projects is the Healer Within Foundation. 
Um, I'd be curious for you to spell out a little bit uh, what the Healer Within concept uh, uh, is made up of. What, how does it work? What does it mean? <laughs> well, that, that's a great question, Jim. Thank you. So the, um, the Healer Within is the aspect of ourself that has kept us well for as long as we were. So let's say, for instance, you're a teenager and you're just as good as can be. Well, how did that happen? Well, there's, a, there's an array of internal functions and resources that are supporting a well person in being well. So the, uh, and then let's say you, you, know, you get the flu. Um, and the doctor says, well, there's not much you can do for the flu. You just have to, you know, take some kind of uh, off-the-shelf uh, uh, symptom management and the flu will just pass. So how is it that the flu passes? Or you cut yourself and, um, you know, it, it, it heals up. Uh, how, how did that healing happen? And what is the natural uh, mechanism or what is the whole uh, list of natural mechanisms that support uh, the human system in sustaining its well-being and its energy and its productivity and its capacity to replicate cells and uh, manifest uh, physiological functions and to sustain um, a, uh, a positive state of mind and so forth. And so all of that is really on board. We, you know, we are born with that that comes with the machinery that we live in, call it the body or the mind and the body or even the mind, body and spirit, this uh, natural capacity and natural, national trend internally towards w healthy function is, um, you know, a part of the, what we're born with in most cases. You know, there are uh, different levels of um, well-being among people and there are uh, genetic predispositions and so forth. So in Chinese medicine, there's a beautiful concept which is based on the fact that you are born with a, uh, a certain amount of, uh, like you could call it a fuel, a naturally occurring internal resource that you can use up. And then if you, if you live a wise life, you tend to use up the fuel more slowly. If you if you're a hard partier, and um, you know you get caught in uh, complex uh, circumstances, or you live a really extremely uh, stressed and compromised life, that fuel could be used up more quickly. So that's why Chinese medicine is based on not only um, therapeutic modalities. But Chinese medicine has a, an absolutely brilliant and robust wellness program. Like here in the Western world, we're just discovering wellness. But actually in China, the wellness program was never not a part of the healthcare system. And so nourishment and nutrition and rest and hydration, drinking water and uh, avoiding polluted environments and, and, and avoiding polluted people, all of those um, all of those factors weigh in on the extent to which the natural healing capacity can become uh, supported and sustained or can become compromised and um, deficient. And so the healer within, let's say you have a, a you know, a 
a hundred percent healer within quotient and then at birth and then throughout your life what happens is that your hundred percent healer within quotient is, def is becomes deficient it would become more deficient in some people earlier because of all the things that we just talked about it would be sustained by others for a longer time because of the things that we just talked about so the healer within is this profound aspect of our being it's like a presence it's like an array of functionality it's like an internal uh, resource or fuel and the healer within foundation is based uh, its mission and vision on the whole idea of uh, maximizing sustaining protecting rehabilitating this healer within capacity and the the whole sort of you want to call one word for the whole thing it would be called empowering people that's not one word <laughs> empowering people to to understand how to sustain their well-being so the one word is empowerment so I have a question both for you Roger and for Jim because I see two conflicting cultural currents one uh, Roger, you just described, you know, there are a lot of people waking up and doing Tai Chi, yoga, meditation, various mindfulness practices, CrossFit, you know, looking out for their body, mind, and spirit, if you want to look at it more holistically. So more people are doing those kind of things, maybe not so holistically, so they're only working on in one area of their life, but they're, you know, they're, they're moving in that direction, and which is a great cultural current. But it seems to me that another conflicting one is increasing number of people who are utilizing medications, polypharmacy, to deal with everyday, you know, stresses, and 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 then in fact they have to do polypharmacy um, because they have to deal with the symptoms of the original drugs they're taking and deal with lifestyle choices that they've taken, whether it's poor choices in nutrition or lack of exercise and movement, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm curious on both your guys' thoughts on these apparently to me at least two conflicting currents in our culture today. Yeah, well, let's hear from Jim. Well, uh, I was going to say let's hear from Roger, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I could say that um, uh, I think that the statistics on drug uh, pharmaceutical use should be looked at fairly carefully. I'm not sure whether the uh, increases are, uh, are weighted toward the older group. Uh, elderly folks are using uh, as many as 15 drugs a month uh, in the prescriptions, you know, and basically uh, they develop uh, by... Uh, having a fundamental thing prescribed for them, and then that creates a problem, and then they prescribe another one, and so forth. Part of the result of that is um, um, I noted that uh, in today's Washington, I think it's Washington Post, has an article that 50% uh, of all surgeries in all hospitals in the country uh, engage uh, a, 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 involve a misused pharmaceutical in that surgery. So that um, this is a kind of a dynamic that's going on, what I've seen as the, uh, as the uh, natural um, uh, wellness movement has been developing is as people begin to take responsibility for their own health and they begin to say, wow, I don't know, this doesn't feel too good to me, they begin to move away from the uh, kind of uh, generic prescriptions of drugs. Um, in fact, uh, Roger worked at a clinic uh, in Columbus, Ohio, Beachwood Clinic, which is actually just down the street from where I lived when I went to law school. And uh, one of the patients there who I got to know well 
who subsequently became a congressman, uh, ended up in this um, uh, integrative, basically, uh, health clinic because after having uh, gotten chemotherapy for his cancer, he lost a leg. And he said to himself, these folks don't have anything to tell me. I better get in control of my own, uh, own health. He was a, actually a high school student at the time. Uh, and went into this beach wall clinic, got uh, cured, and uh, uh, now, you know, 35, 40 years later, is uh, living a very, uh, very robust, happy life by having himself taken on the idea that there's got to be something more to this than just taking that pill and lying back and let it take care of itself. And I felt, Roger, and maybe you can jump in at this point in that, I've always felt that at that point when a person kind of snaps awake about the drugs they're taking uh, and some of the other conventional methods that are being used at, when they snap awake, they kind of connect with that healer within and start engaging it in a more robust way. That seems to be what I see going on. So I see that the trends operating. People are using more drugs to some extent, but also they're discovering that there are many other things that they could do besides those drugs. And I, I do want to have one other point. And uh, I'm very, very cautious about antibiotics. I think we way overuse them, not to mention overusing them in animals. But one of the primary reasons I think you should use antibiotics in a, in a very a sparing way is because the day that you need them, you want them to work efficiently and effectively and not have gotten uh, sensitized to their effect. So I'm saying that a balanced approach where both of these kinds of uh, uh, approaches uh, are used and integrated is probably what the trends are telling us. Uh, as I say, let's go look at the drug use and see where it is, but I, th I suspect we're seeing the kind of integration that Roger was talking about on a societal basis, I think we're seeing on an individual basis. But back, Roger, I just tossed you that ball again about the uh, people <laughs> connecting with their healer within once they've had a health crisis. Yes. Yes. Well, I think that, <laughs> you know, it's been uh, an amazing experience for me. I'll just say briefly that when <clears throat> I was very young, my dad died and it really got my attention, as you can imagine. And uh, it really drove me in the on a quest for, you know, did he need to? Uh, you know, was it necessary? And of course, there's destiny associated with this, which is not our topic today. But what it did bring me to was uh, a personal, ex a bunch of personal experiences. And, um, and so I'll just, uh, I'll, I'll couch my response, at least the first part of my response, as, as a personal story. When, when I was a little kid, of course, m my family believed uh, completely in the, the, the silver bullet, the magic bullet of, of medicine and so forth, and was pretty disappointed when my dad uh, was not able to find that silver bullet for himself. Um, but my mom was pretty convinced, and so I would get these, uh, <clears throat> spring and fall, I would get these respiratory uh, issues, and so then I would have antibiotics, just speaking to what you said, uh, Jim. And uh, over time, it became obvious that they were working short-term, but not really long-term, because it would happen again in the next spring. And when I was about 17 or 18, I met a homeopath uh, the guy was 90 years old when I met him, and um, later, when I got into my 20s, I actually studied with this guy, uh, and he was in his 90s at that point, but the story about the antibiotics was that he gave me one, one remedy, one homeopathic remedy, 
And I never took another antibiotic until I was over 50 years old. It was just an amazing experience. And so when that kind of a thing happens to a person who's sort of on Michael's, uh, you know, polypharmacy track, when that kind of a thing happens, it really gets your attention. And it's inspiring. And so from there on, you want to learn stuff, study stuff, talk to your friends, you know, see who else is having these kinds of experiences. So there's a real culture that builds up around this whole idea of, um, you know, natural healing, shall we say. Now, on the other hand, I must say that there are a lot of people who have experienced one of my kids is is involved in this right now, uh, where he has had some challenges with some skin, psoriasis, uh, eczema, one of those things. And, um, you know, medicine wasn't helping him. So he went to the, you know, the kind of naturopathic side of things. And he's been really in good faith on that for quite a while. And it hasn't really been as spectacular as he would wish. But check this out. In the meantime, he learned a lot, and he changed his lifestyle a lot, and it's very clear to me that he will not be going back to, you know, his, uh, shall we say, uh, comfortable habits from the past. You know, as a teenager, he was just a crazy, his diet was just awful, I couldn't do anything about it, and, um, but he's finally doing something about it himself, and over time, he may self-regulate just because he, he will sustain a fairly uh, reasonable lifestyle. So in both cases, a person who is on polypharmacy has an experience of an acupuncture treatment, a massage, uh, reducing their drug intake, utilizing a homeopathic formula. Uh, there's some powerful homeopathics for in helping with sleep. And a lot of times people end up with side effects of drugs that keep, keep them awake and then they take another drug to sleep and then they don't have any energy. So just putting a homeopathic in the place of the sleep remedy can make a big difference. And so this really gets people's attention. And then as I said, even for people who have, let's say, not the most miraculous experience with the um, natural healing, we'll just use those words, through the process of exploring the potential of natural healing, they always learn something. And so they never quite end up going back to just uh, a kind of mindless faith in um, conventional medicine. There's always uh, a halo or, or an echo of the uh, transition, you know, to a more mindful approach to, to living. And I'll say one more thing about this, uh, Michael, thanks for the question, is that, uh, you know, We've had recent uh, statistics on the use of pain medication, op opioids, and uh, one of the headlines in Time Magazine, I think it was even a cover story, was that uh, the use of opioids in the United States is the worst drug problem that has ever been experienced by this nation. So we're not talking crack, we're not talking marijuana, we're not talking heroin, we're talking um, drug drugs that are uh, pro provided by healthcare providers. And there's a really, really interesting initiative going on out there right now, which I really love, and I want to just say the name of it so that people can Google it. It's called Never Only Opioids. 
never only opioids. And so doctors and healthcare systems and so forth are signing on to this initiative. And basically what it's saying is that, yeah, we might give you opioids, but we're never going to only give you opioids. We're going to also teach you how to do your diet. Uh, We're going to teach you about inflammatory foods. We're going to put you in a relationship with a physical therapist or a nutritionist or a acupuncturist or or a massage therapist or a yoga class or a tai chi class Uh, so there this is another one of these things it's already in our society that really shows that while yes there is a trend towards the the downside of polypharmacy and a kind of mindless kind of living that many very responsible um, cutting-edge innovative organizations are signing on to these initiatives like Never Only Opioids. Back to you, Michael. No, that's great. <clears throat> we'll definitely make sure that's in the show notes so people can check it out. Um, so I have two more cultural currents that I'd like you and Jim to to discuss. Um, I just use the words decentralize and centralize. It seems to me that a lot of people are kind of in the spontaneous decentralized space where they're experimenting a lot more in their lives diet, nutrition, fitness, you know, various lifestyle changes at the more extreme and fun end of that are the biohackers who track, you know, a multitude of physiological functions through using technology and then use various interventions, uh, uh, drug therapies or nutritional therapies or meditation, yoga, biofeedback, etc., to change these various physiological functions to increase health, wellness, and performance. Well, those are experiments that individuals are doing, or maybe groups of individuals are doing together. And that seems to be one important trend. Um, and I'd like you to speak to that trend in our culture. I th- and also like Jim to speak to that too, because it seems to me that there's historical precedence for those kind of trends. It's not just something mm-hmm. brand new here you know, in the 21st century. But the other trend seems to be the centralization of decision making away from the individual towards large institutions, whether it's insurance companies or governments at various levels. And those two types of uh, movements, one towards decentralization towards the individual and one towards centralization towards large institutions, seem to be you know, at odds with each other. So if you guys could discuss, if you think that's true, uh, what your thoughts are on both of those things. And, and we'd love to, to turn it to Jim first, if that's okay. Sure. Uh, and maybe throw talk a little about the history of this freedom versus order conflict. Well, the, we see around us these really fascinating things like um, Uber is the largest cab company and has no cabs. Uh, Airbnb is the largest hotel company and owns no hotels. Uh, and I think this is a general tra- uh, uh, activity that's underway. Uh, what's happening is uh, a very small, narrow group of people is managing a uh, to create a system uh, that looks like centralization. I mean, if you look at Uber, it looks centralized when you look at the top, but when you look at the bottom, it looks very decentralized. Uh, if you look at the agriculture system, we have a comparable thing developing there with the um, with the farmers markets and the homegrown food, and the, that's a fairly large movement, large enough to get its own amendment to the Agriculture Act that went through a few years ago. Um, I think that what's happening is people are getting more and more and more resources to themselves individually. Uh, They have a a broader uh, bandwidth for information and for action. Uh, Then, at the same time, there are narrow groups of people who are managing 
how those systems interact and interrelate with each other. So uh, if I've got a cell phone and I want to and I want to get picked up by a cab, I can do that. But I can only do that because somebody somewhere has set up a system to allow that to happen. It's kind of a um, a projection out of the um, of the entire concept of the internet, which um, gives us huge capacity for individual development, and yet could not exist if it weren't for the um, concentrated, integrated uh, space that's created by the people who created the internet. Um, I think over time, um, the flow of information has been the key dynamic that has caused things to develop. So that as you um, as you look um, uh, at the unfolding of Western civilization, let's just stick there for the moment. Maybe, Roger, you can tell us a little bit about what the Eastern uh, parallel is. But if you start out, uh, everybody's kind of locally, organ uh, locally focused in their own space. And then you start with things like um, in the United States, it was canals and then railroads, and uh, then it was the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, telegraph and the telephone, and then... Uh, radio, then television, and then so forth. You can see in each of those, each of those things have developed a, a stronger amount of knowledge has fallen into, usable knowledge has fallen into the hands of the individual, not the least of which comes from the ability to travel. I mean, you can, you know, used to, when you came, when the Constitution was written, it took about two weeks to go from Mount Vernon to Philadelphia. Now, when you were going to Mount Vernon to Philadelphia, you had a lot of interaction with a lot of people. Every night as you stopped and waited and talked and ate and so forth. Over time, now, you know, you can go to Philadelphia from Washington in two hours, two and a half hours. And um, you don't have those sitting downs and conversations and so on. But now that we've started to develop all of this information flowing back to the individual, we are just in a flow of information and have more knowledge, more ability, more things we can find. And it, it's been our, our belief in, in our transpartisan thinking that freedom and order integrated is what creates the ability for people to live a better, more full life. Uh, how we're going to do that and how we're going to manage that and how all these resources that are falling into the hands of the individual are going to get used is what the adventure is going forward. And by the way, I believe that's also happening in the healthcare world. Uh, as I said earlier, more and more people are taking more responsibility for their own health. Uh, but I also saw in the Washington Post a story a couple days ago about the, it was actually a, an op-ed piece about why we should bring back doctors visiting patients at home. And that, I think, is going to be a trend that starts to develop. And a recent meeting that I was in, I was at with the president of a uh, major hospital here, chain here in Washington, uh, and he's saying that the way that the, the margins have been set up in the uh, 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 new insurance uh, packages that are set up by Obamacare, the way that the money flows the margins have been narrowed so much that they've got to look for less expensive ways of being involved with patients than with drugs. Um, and in addition to that, they can't keep them in the, uh, in the uh, hospital as long. And a, a whole range of things have been done to push things back toward the individual in the framework of the, uh, of the Obamacare itself. You know, good, whether you like it or not, I mean, these things are forces that are operating. So I think what we're seeing is more and more tools, information, knowledge, mobility, and so forth in the hands of the individual, and then at the same time, systems being created to accommodate that ability to uh, engage all of that resource. So both trends, I think, could be going on simultaneously and be both creative. Uh, Roger, before you jump in, I'd just like to ask a clarifying question, because 
the systems being created I hear that Jim's talking about in response to individual actors taking more responsibility and action in their own lives seem to be from a high acting perspective, spontaneous orders. Uh, and I'm wondering how those systems might relate to more concentrated systems uh, which have pre-existed, what you're now talking about, not you know pre-existed Airbnb and, and, and Uber and such, um, that seek to control markets, not to free them up for the individual. The, con the concentrated systems that we've inherited, let's just say since, I think it led up to the Second World War and after the Second World are all collapsing. Every single one of them are collapsing. Uh, I, I did some consulting with, uh, with uh, AT&T for a few years back in the 80s. Uh, and uh, it's, it's fascinating to know that a $200 billion company that existed in 1983 is completely out of existence now, went out of existence in the early 2000s. The AT&T we have today is another company, Singular, which is built on a diverse model in, in its own way. I'm not arguing for or against it at the moment. I'm just making an observation. And um, the guy that bought it said uh, the only thing I ever liked about AT&T was the name, so he changed his company's name from Singular to AT&T. But they, but the big giant AT&T disappeared. Uh, Kodak is gone. I mean, it's a, in, in bankruptcy. Uh, you've got um, uh, I, I, one of the things I noted in, in the way that these institutions are being pushed around. Uh, within about a month's period of time, the uh, Twinkie basically went out of business because the company making it went bankrupt, and the Pope resigned. These are two major institutional forces in the lives that I was growing up with which suffered tremendous um, uh, uh, wrenching from the kind of um, diverse energies that are flowing around that can't be controlled. And the guys that are trying to control this are having trouble. Just look at the political process across the world. People trying to d dominate this thing by force and by demand and by in insistence are having a very, very difficult time. Uh, we haven't come up with what the substitutes are going to be or the alternatives are going to be in all these instances, but right in the political world you can see one after another of a so-called conventional establishment person being displaced by people who are uh, riding on these forces that are uh, dispersing the energy uh, from the center out to the periphery is the way I see it. Thanks, Jim. Hey, Roger, um, I'm, we're going to close it on your last set of comments. And uh, what I'd like you to do is at the end of your comments, you can, you can either answer the question I asked or if there's other things you want to talk about, you can do that as well. But we also want to make sure that you plug your various websites too. So make sure to include them at the end. Sure. Comments. I will do that. And, and, you know, clearly we're really only just getting started, so we'll have to get together again sometime. Of course. <clears throat> I, I, I always love to uh, hear these questions that, suggest duality. So on the one hand you have order and on the other hand you have kind of a chaotic creativity. On one hand you have centralization, on the other hand you have the dispersal of power you know down at the bottom to the people and so forth. Uh, very very uh, interesting uh, dichotomy or duality that seems to be pretty darn prevalent. I mean if you look through history these uh, opposing or what appear to be opposing features are actually uh, everywhere in, in, in the history of the world. And so it isn't really a surprise that we have, uh, you know, on one hand, a, a, almost like a longing for a kind of order um, 
a system that everybody adheres to um, just to keep us safe. You know, if we had a we had a reasonable system to adhere to that was about safety and well-being, um, wow, I mean, I'd even sign up for that. And I'm not a very <coughs> systems-oriented person, um, tend to be a little bit more of a personal person uh, with a connection, direct connection, say, to nature. On the other hand, we've, as Jim was saying, got all of these um, examples of decentralization. And um, so I'm a real fan of the fact that these two are always, have always been there and always are going to be there. And so getting used to it and settling into it and learning how to manage our relationship with the fact that we have individual choice and the kind of, um, shall we say, granted by God right to self-determinism on one hand, but then on the other hand, as a collective, um, a need and a longing, call it a society, call it a tribe, call it a village, call it a family, uh, call it an association, an association of, of people with shared values. All of those um, uh, need to be, shall we say, balanced and come into harmony. In Chinese medicine, we talk about it all the time. Balance and harmony is of the functionality of the system. And um, so I'd like to just say a couple of things about this that may or may not fit with this question, but I think are really, really interesting. And the first one is that when I took that homeopathic remedy back in the uh, 60s, uh, the other thing that happened was that right around the corner there was a bookstore of used books. And I got a bunch of these really interesting books from about the 1800s, 1870s, 1880s, 1890s from the um, cereal companies. So, for instance, the Kellogg Cereal Company published a book about how to keep your family healthy. And, of course, in that book, they were pitching both their cornflakes and they were uh, pitching their natural healing spa in Battle Creek, Michigan. Uh, another of the um, grain companies that provided a, a big book about how to keep your family healthy which had everything from how to can vegetables and how to um, eliminate mildew from your laundry. I mean, it was just an amazing holistic approach to life, which was being fostered and supported by these large uh, corporations that were making cereal at the time. Amazing. And so then if we fast forward a little bit, we get to the era of the... Um, silver bullet and, and finding the cure for everything from a pharmaceutical point of view and inventing molecules and the, um, uh, the whole FDA side of things and uh, assuring safety by, you know, making it, it cost a million dollars to be able to prove that a medicine was safe and effective and then the cost of that medicine being really expensive uh, because of that whole process and, and in the meantime, there are natural molecules in nature that often do some of the same things. And so if you, if you fast forward a little more, you get to the Mayo Clinic and WebMD and these other very, very large organizations which have now signed on to the idea that they don't have to 
sell a hospital bed to everyone and that they can have, um, shall we say, that they can do good, positive public relations by helping people to be healthier and then just treating the people who are sick. And, and so we've got, we don't have the big book from Kellogg anymore, but we have the blogs and other sites that are associated with uh, distributing really uh, logical and useful health sustainability information. So I think it speaks in the final analysis, we're on the sub-subject of healthcare, but if we go to the meta-subject of the whole concept that you brought up originally, Michael, about the relationship or these two apparently differing uh, points of view or factors in the world, one being more system-driven and one being more creative and random, in the final analysis, I think that, the, that they really they have to coexist. Uh, as, as humans, we have, for whatever reason, we have a propensity to looking at things from the point of view of debate as opposed to dialogue. And we have a point of view of taking a side and defending it as opposed to, um, you know, sort of like working towards a dialogue for the common good. And it may be, I mean, this is my evolutionary theory, that the positive potential outcome for the human race is based on the fact that we will finally solve the problem of, of, of this issue of being addicted to debate and taking sides as opposed to being, uh, you know, being addicted to the whole concept of collaboration. So I'll leave it there, and then uh, uh, thanks for the opportunity to, to give some websites. So I think the, the main one that I would give is uh, the IIQTC, that is the Institute of Integral Qigong and Tai Chi. That's one of our training, uh, uh, to like a Department of Health Action. So allow me to give the, uh, the website for that one, which is very easy, and that is IIQTC. Dot org, iiqtc.org, and there are libraries there of lots of information about mind-body practice. And then I'll just give one other, and Jim mentioned it, and it's a really favorite uh, activity that I'm involved with, which is called the Healer Within Foundation. And the web address for that is simply healerwithinfoundation.com. Dot .org I know it's long but it's easy to spell healer within foundation.org and thanks for the invite to be here it's really been fun no thank you Roger and thank you Jim no thanks thanks both of you and uh, definitely look forward to continuing this trilogue and uh, hopefully in the very near future Roger great talking to you and uh, we'll be talking to you soon wish you well thanks, thanks a lot <laughs>